Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating the variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is writer, broadcaster and according to the BBC News channel, Clangers expert, Tim Worthington. Tim presents Looks Unfamiliar, a popular podcast about all things that you remember that nobody else ever seems to, whether it's Coming on Strong by Broken English or The Order of the McVitie's Hobnob, and has written books about BBC records and tapes and comedy on BBC Radio 1. He can often be found in the pages of Doctor Who magazine and Vintage Rock or on Channel 5 at about a million o'clock in the morning talking about the Ferrero Rocher advert and once accidentally spilt Dr Pepper on a brand new sofa while listening to Now 13. Tim, really? That is absolutely true. Christmas 1988. It happened. It was I was gesturing expressively about how much I dislike transition bump. And with without thinking that I had a glass in my hand, turned my hand upside down. Oh my goodness. Oh dear. Tim, welcome back to now. Thank you very much. Uh, that's a very confusing. That's a bit like, do you remember this week, next week, the BBC Critical yes. Discussion Show, where they used to say at the end, that's all from this week, next week for this week. We'll see you again on this week, next week, next week. So until next week and this week, next week. Goodbye. We need to talk about Top of the Box, Volumes 1 and 2, the complete guide to the BBC records and tapes, singles and albums. If people do not know these, they are absolutely wonderful. You need them in your life. And Tim is going to tell you why. Well, the main reason I would say is because as well as the fact that you know, BBC Records and Tapes existed from roughly from 1970 to 1992, during that time, you know, they put out a lot of TV and radio related music and some other things like live albums by bands and so on, as well as there being a lot of great music in there that's been overlooked. I mean, there is a lot of you know crooners and birdsong things about the sound effects. The sound effects albums, if you have the patience... They're sort of comically horrifying. That's the best way I could describe them. But all this stuff was released in response to viewer demand. And it's the most accurate view you can get of what was actually popular at the time with listeners, with viewers, as opposed to what we're told in retrospect was really popular. My key thing would be, now I do get a lot of blowback from this, but the entry about the Box of Delights Mm. makes it clear that at the time, I'm not saying it wasn't great. I'm not saying it didn't win awards, but it was just a children's programme that came and went, and they didn't even really do a proper theme single for it. They didn't use the on-air version of the theme. Mm. They used the original, it wasn't library music, but it was a piece of sort of rendered classical music that was used to create the theme with. And Mm. it's only later that we've been told, you know, it changed the world. It did did eventually, but not for a very long time. And... It's a bit like the album I'm going to talk about today. It's a reflection of what's been written out of history about what people like, because everybody didn't all like the same thing at the same time. Yes. And I think there's so much in there. There were broadcasters I've never heard of that, you know, in the very early days of released albums of their greatest radio moments, things like that. All kinds of programmes that I remember being on just as I was carted up to bed in the early 80s that... I'd forgotten about completely. The second I saw the title, I thought, wow, yes, that must have been popular because it didn't have much of a theme, but it was released as a single. So it is not just a discography. It is a story, really. And there are some incredible left-field, bizarre moments sitting next to the real popular artists or the big popular themes of the day. There really are. I would say, one of the, well, actually, I'll say one thing you can notice from it is things like you can notice the rise of EastEnders, because you mentioned it being chronologically in real time, and the decline of Doctor Who, sadly, in real time, because the releases, on the one hand, increase, and on the other, just tail off, because even the fans aren't buying them. Mm. But I'd say the most important album in the regard you just mentioned is Metal Explosion, I think it's from 1979 or 1980, but it's based on Tommy Vance's Radio 1 show, just when the new wave of British heavy metal was happening, which obviously was kind of heavy metal's punk. And these bands weren't even in the charts yet. 
But they yeah. said to Tommy Vance, who are you championing? Can we get them all in the studio? And it's still really highly rated by metal fans, that album. You get things like that. You get sort of moments in time that would not have been captured otherwise, I don't think. I also have to say here, um, I'm reaching down. I'm now holding up to the camera. Hong Kong Beat. Oh, I love Hong Kong Beat. Hong Kong Beat and other BBC TV themes. Am I going to ask you what the catalogue number is on that one? I can't remember the catalogue oh, number. It's Richard Denton and Martin Cook. Yeah. They were very early. Yeah. See, they don't get mentioned in things like Synth Britannia, but because they did soundtrack work rather than pop singles. But yeah. they were real pioneers with oh. you know, the Korg and polyphonic synths and so on. those people who maybe aren't aware of Denton and Cook's work, you are, because you're looking at that wonderful 1980s Tomorrow's World theme. The phrase I use to describe it is Gary Newman Plus. Yes, yeah. So volume one is singles, that's correct, and volume two is albums. Uh, Exhibit B, Bang on a Drum. Bang on the Drum has the most amazing cover. It's the Play School Toys gathered around the drum kit playing it, apart from Humble is apparently playing it with her fists, which I think is quite fitting. She always looked kind of savage and feral to me. Yeah. But that is a tremendous, I would call it an acid folk album, just a yes. very polite one. And it has got a drum break on it, which I've recently mentioned on Six Music, has been sampled by any number of hip-hop artists. And apparently Prince owned a copy of the album as well because of that break. Which which is just fabulous. Big Ted is really... is is inspecting his drumstick very closely <laughs> and how how on earth they got Humpty to be sitting there without falling off that drum. But the best thing was when I bought this, the person who was selling this to me also had a copy of the Playway album as well, holding up. Oh, which one? Oh, the first one, yes, with Superstition one. on it. It's kind of like a black exploitation funk thing and yeah. it predates very, very slightly Stevie Wonder's Superstition. <laughs> I don't think for a second he came over to the UK and he saw Playaway and thought I should do something on that theme, but it is uncanny. Absolutely wonderful. Top of the box. I know there'll be people listening to the podcast who will know your work already, Tim, but if you haven't um, get them, they're available to buy in all good bookshops and to download as well. It starts to, I suppose, get us into understanding, I'm guessing, a bit about your growing up in music, Tim? I would probably say so, because, you know, listening to a lot of these, a lot of people's story seems to be about listening to the top 40 on their own Mm. and sort of discovering what they like that way, whereas I'm from a very large family and there was music of all kinds all around because even that, you know, we all like different things, we all had different tastes. So, for example... I do like quite a bit of metal from the 80s and early hip-hop that, you know, isn't my normal taste, but was just what was blurring around. I mean, I have my own interest. Even from a very young age, I was going towards the 60s, and eventually that just sort of post-Brit-pop, that took over, and that became, you know, when I say all I listened to, I don't mean just sat there listening to The Doors' greatest hits on a loop. You know, my thing is I always want to hear something new, and there's always something new even in old stuff in inverted commas there's always something you've not heard that's quite exciting to come across but generally the sounds of the day and although i didn't actually own a now album until now five Mm. we had the others from the first one onwards in the house and it is interesting i was thinking about this how there wasn't that perpetual present in those days and a now album once it had served its shelf life was actually seen as a bit naff it struck me when I was thinking about this. Do you remember on the 31st of December, 1989, BBC Two broadcast a three-hour programme called 80s? Yes, which is yes. Clips of basically every pop band from the 80s. But I remember watching that and seeing Heaven 17 doing Temptation, which would have been like, what, seven years old at that point? And yep. thinking, blimey, that feels a very long time ago. Because it did, because things just... They moved on that quickly. So those now albums are sort of discarded, you know, left lying around after oh, yeah. a while. Yeah. Back then, there was no idea of these being collectible archives. In some ways, I mean, I think back even to the kind of early noughties, when you could pick up now albums on eBay and other seller sites for pennies. Yeah. They were disposable snapshots. Absolutely that. Quite a lot of them I did get from charity shops. But I remember walking out with armfuls of them, including 
the two original Now Dance ones and Now the Summer album, which none of which I got at the time, despite, you know, seeing the advert in Smash Hits for Now the Summer album, thinking, yeah. wow, I've not heard all these 60s records. Because it oh. seemed like a, a great way to get hold of all this new music, as I say. There had been compilations before the first Now album, but they never quite were what people were looking for. They never caught on. So I was thinking about, because you asked me about my earliest musical memories in terms of pop music. And I can remember, apart from things like being frightened by money, 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 when it was on the radio, when I was very young, you know, because it, it sounded like witches, I thought. <laughs> Angie Baby, I remember being quite unnerved by that, by Helen Reddy, because she trapped a boy in the radio. But the sort of most cogent things I can remember quite early on were obviously having, you know, quite a few elder siblings. I mean, mm. this is going to sound like I'm trying to be achingly cool now. It, it isn't, but I remember liking, I remember liking Blondie quite a lot. I remember the others hitting me with sofa cushions saying, you want to marry Debbie Harry. <laughs> Ian <laughs> Jury. I remember being quite keen on the teardrop explodes. The Human League before the Human League, as we know them, you know, when it was the sort yeah. of, what became Heaven 17, I remember. It can't have been the original being boiled, but there was a reissue of it, wasn't there? Not the reissue after the Human League broke big, but I, one of them had yeah. that sort of EP. And I remember being fascinated by being boiled and trying to play it on the piano in the house. And so <laughs> it's interesting that that whole era is, yeah. I would say, is loved more than the 80s itself is in terms of pop music, but there wasn't that unifying compilation to go in. And still, as now people have tried to do one and it hasn't worked. But I mean, that's that's the sort of stuff I remember from early on, though. But I remember being very into it. I mean, XTC were early heroes of mine because I think there's something that's never left me. And it's kind of says a lot about my personality. It was very into the people who looked like they didn't belong on top of the pops. Yeah. They might have looked more at home on, say, Tiz was or Swap Shop, you know, with Noel or Chris Tarrant being more sympathetic than them. But people like XTC. Yeah. Musical youth, Joe Boxers, the Smiths, yeah. I would say. I know it's kind of verboten to say you like them now because of no. Morrissey being who he is, but that was what appealed to me about all of them was being a bit outsidery. And it always felt like, felt like a victory when something like that turned up on a Now album or a Hits album, actually. So Now 5 was your first one then? Now 5 was, yes. Yeah, and that's interesting because that, to me, it's kind of the definition of the contrast of now, because on the one hand, you've got the word girl by Scritti Politti. Notice I'm saying it in the way Green intended it to be said, which <laughs> yeah. had a profound influence on me and effect on me at the time. And on the other hand, you've got Turn It Up by the Conway Brothers, which when that turned up on the top of the pops repeats, my immediate reaction was turn it off, oh, as I it know. always was. And also had none in the 19 not out by the commentators. You oh. think even Rory Bremner doesn't remember. And you listen back to now, it's the most parochial thing that just it's incomprehensible now, isn't it? it? It's nothing. It's got in jokes about cricket and radio four. You know? yeah. <laughs> What's your view on the cover of Now Five? It looks like the folder that the arty girl in school had that she designed herself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sitting drawing all the logos of all the bands. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And she'd never talk to anybody either. She'd no. <laughs> she certainly wouldn't talk to me. And now, the album to keep you moving all night long. Now, dance the 12 inch mixes. Extended dance versions of 20 smash hits. With Phyllis Nelson, Rob Ann, Curtis Hairston, Loose Ends, and many more. Two hours of wicked mixes on one great double album. Now dance the 12 inch mixes. Jump out and get it. We are going to move actually just a few months back from now, five. And we're going to yeah. go to the album that you have picked. I'm so pleased that you have picked this. It's called, we'll give it its full title, No Dance, The 12 Inch Mixes. Yeah, that's absolutely it from 1985. Although I only saw the track listing at the time. I didn't get hold of it until a couple of years later when somebody, obviously, they'd moved on from, they'd changed the different dance moves, <laughs> discarded this into... <laughs> The Oxfam adjacent to Penny Lane, so I don't know what John and Paul would have thought of that, but that's where I got it from in, I think, 1988. This must have 
looked like a different planet in 1988. It really did, because I think the real important thing about this is it's the very last gasp of, in inverted commas, club music. Yeah. In yeah. the sense of... It's going to take some explaining, I think, but before dance music became a thing, I think mm. it was completely different. I think dance music informed the lifestyle that grew up around it, whereas club music was more about... The music was incidental. It was a backdrop to club life, and the music was different as well. In some ways, it was a broader church, as we'll find out on the album, but it was just a different world, really. I mean, I'm being quite reductive here because obviously there were things going on before, you know, dance music as we know it, because obviously, you know, there was Northern Soul, which yeah. what was that about if it wasn't repetitive beats and anti-fashion? And also, you know, the whole gay nightlife scene with a broad brush from a huge commercial perspective, you know, it was people, very well-dressed people, looking down Beeritz and Taboo in the neon-lit nightclub, you know, where they like to have a nice long version of something either sophisticated from America or that was a bit more groovy that was in the charts. I think, personally, I think Jack Your Body is the fulcrum. That's when yeah. everything changes. That's like the anarchy in the UK of dance music, really. But before that, if you look at Now Dance 86, you've got a couple of things on there, like Love Can't Turn Around by Farley Jack Master Funk. You know, that is almost saying something different is happening. Yeah. And this is the only real prominent snapshot of what, well, I keep saying in the inverted commas, club music, but that's yeah. the only way I can make it describe yeah. it, yeah. was like. So let's put this into context of the Now story. Now 4 had been released November 84, and you would be expecting the next volume, volume 5, to be coming out. But Now released this, a double album, not of 30, but 20 12-inch mixes. It's a bit of a sidestep from what had been now really chasing the commercial chart. And that's not to say there aren't big hits on this album, but there's also, it is a club culture album. Yes, and it's difficult to see who it would have been aimed at at the time in mm. terms of, it was very obviously, it was the first attempt to expand the Now brand. Yeah, I was probably the target audience for Now. Yeah. Even though I, I sort of lacked the purchasing power to, you know, I had to wait for birthday or Christmas to get Snap. You know, the actual albums. But if you think about it, 1985, I think I was just going from primary school to secondary school. I played a lot on the ZX Spectrum. Mm. I had just got my green belt in karate. I was avidly reading Marvel's Secret Wars. Yeah. I was watching EastEnders, which obviously started that year and developed a bit of a fixation with Letitia Dean. So, yes, I do own the 12 inches of something out of nothing. Grange Hill, I would have been watching quite a lot, going to see things like Jewel of the Nile, Back to the Future. I fitted every qualification yeah. of who the Now albums were for. And although I found the idea of this album intriguing and thought, ooh, what's that like? It wasn't aimed at me or anyone like me. No, on the cover, you've got that. It's already very provocative with that models arriving around in a very expensive bed. Yeah. They yeah. were trying to pull in this audience who I think probably would have thought, I'm not buying a Now album. I'm way too cool. There was a real compilation chart wars in 1985 because mm -hmm. the Hits album was really starting to take off. There was the Out Now albums. But <laughs> 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 I mention them, guys. You always see them. If, you, if you're if you on holiday in the South Coast, they are always in charity shops. The Out Now I don't know why that is. Did somebody just dump a load of them on Solber? So that meant that the licensing was starting to strip out. And 1985 was one of those years where there only was two numbered albums, five and six, five coming after this. So Now Dance is, is a real nugget. It's a fascinating album. Full credit to them. They clearly looked for whatever was popular in clubs at oh, that point. Yeah. But musically, it's all over the place. Yeah. I've got the vinyl copy, Exhibit A. We'll hold up to the camera. You're right. Very provocative cover. The model's name was Katie Kocheff. The tagline says, two hours of wicked mixes to keep you moving all night long. That's quite clever. There are certain things that fit the bill. You've got the Now logos on there. There's slightly spinning arrows around the circles of Now to maybe suggest movement. So, it's, I mean, it's recognisable now. It says on the back, the album you've been dreaming of. Do you know what, 12? I don't think I was dreaming of this, to be honest, guys. But having said all that, it is a snapshot. It's easy now, so many years later, to think of dance just, as you say, starting 
starting in 1988, and we were all at acid house parties, and suddenly we realised that dance music was the thing. But it had to evolve into that. Yes, and also I think it also shows what got left behind because it is full Mm. of the lost art of the 12-inch extended version. Yeah. Which again, now people just look back on that and think, oh, it was just they made the instrumental bits longer. It's never, things were often more inventive than that. They yeah. turned things into completely different songs without changing any of the mix or anything, yeah. just by pushing some bits back and forth and so on. The last things I can remember having proper old school extended mixes that I bought as singles were some of the early Blur ones did. Mm. And unbelievable by EMF. That was the only EMF one that had an extended mix on it, as opposed to remixes. Yeah. Remixes take over very suddenly in about January 1991. Yeah, yeah. And it was never quite in some ways the same again. So what we've got here, we've got Brit Funk, we've got Go Go, we've got some Soul, we've got some Disco, and we've got some straightforward extended pop is probably the best way to describe it so let's jump into some of the tracks side one is your pop chart zone would that be right i would say so yeah track one side one is easy lover philip bailey and phil collins it's the extended dance remix this is a great example of that it is, and you can hear the join in it slightly in places, yeah. I would say, in a really endearing way. But yeah. I really enjoyed hearing it because Easy Lover has to be one of the most forgotten. It was number one for five weeks, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it was everywhere. To be fair, it's probably been overshadowed by Phil Collins's other discography, really. Yeah. And listening to it, I thought, this is actually really well done. It's, mm. you know, quite an obvious anthem-y, stadium-y song. What they've really cleverly done is in taking the song that was like Taylor Way for Miami Vice and just taking the fact that it's got Phil Collins hitting the drums really hard on it, brought them to the fore. And that really makes it... I'm still at a loss as to who would have enthusiastically danced to this, but somebody must have done. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's a great cut and paste 12-inch of, you know, we're going to have an instrumental break here, we're going to have a breakdown. They kind of add a kind of drum machine to the whole thing as well, which isn't on the original... Mm. Was it actually on a proper Now album? I don't think it was, was it? Oh, well, we're going to have to get controversial here because it was on Hits 2. Ah, well, okay. Well, that that counts then. But I think Hits 2 is sort of, of the early Hits albums, I would say that's the poor relation. It's got that big neon pink-yellow thing going on and stuff like that. and Hasn't it got some quite old songs on it as well? Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of 84 on there, which the rapidness of the 80s was like saying... What? This is easy. <laughs> but um, no, it, so it didn't make a now. One More Night was on now five. Um, and I think he was on now six with separate lives. So yeah, I mean, he was everywhere. He was on that Concord between live aid, flying back and forward, negotiating his now tracks. Did he have one for between now and hits? Just like <laughs> a mini plane. <laughs> on Concord, he's got two big, massive 80s mobile phones. One of them is for hits, one of them is for now, and he's negotiating <laughs> as he goes. He's telling Noel Edmonds, sorry, I'm too busy, I'm talking to CBS and Warner. Did, did, he, did he go on top of the pops with an Out Now album on top of his piano to send a message to his ex-wife? <laughs> if, if you look next to the painting, is a copy of out, <laughs> out now on cassette, the big the big square cassette box sitting there. Anyway, we divulge. What this says though is we're entering a dance zone. We're in now, but it's still familiar territory. Yes, yeah, I think that's a good way of luring in the the floating voters. I suppose <laughs> the casual the casual listeners in the car are going. I bought the new album and it's Phil Collins. We're all right. Track two, it's the power station. Now, I would describe this as, I mean, I have some positive things to say about it, but it was a record that I found, you know, because there was a big thing about there's going to be two Duran Duran spin-off bands. And obviously, you know, Election Day was brilliant. Oh, yeah. And I would describe it as, it's like David Bowie's Never Let Me Down album, but without the tunes. And given that I'm one of the only people in the entire universe that you will find that will argue that Never Let Me Down has some tunes on it. Yeah. I think that's that says a lot, really. <laughs> yeah. It's so this this was I am um, as you say, Duran Splinter number one. And it was I think it was a couple of months ahead of Arcadia. Am I right? I think I think, we, I think it, it must have been because election day is on now six, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
So they got out of the traps early, roped in Robert Palmer. There's a great description inside, because we do like a picture and a caption in a new album. And it says, it says, the power station are John Taylor and Andy Taylor from Duran Duran, chic drummer Tony Thompson. You see, when you're 12, this is important, this, this you know. And the man from Batley, Malta and the Bahamas, singer Robert Palmer. I, I mean, that didn't even mean anything to me when I was 12. The no. Man, Batley, Malta, and the Bahamas. It sounded exotic. Um, and also, their inexcusable cover of Get It On was on Now 5, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. So we were a bit spoiled for Power Station choice. But yeah. I will say, in its extended form, I like it a bit better because it's a bit less like... It's like being punched in the face by an effects pedal, the, the shorter edit of this. But it's got a bit more room to... I can't say breathe, but there's yeah. a bit more of a, a drive to it. I think it works much better in this longer <laughs> form, but you I mean, liked it more than I expected to. I don't know what they were breathing. <laughs> it does say. Um, I, I think this may be... I would a... say anyone who wonders about that, there's a quietus article that might fill you in. <laughs> well, um, I think I think this quote comes from John Taylor's biography, where he says, um, lavish drug fueled lifestyle during the recording of the album made focusing somewhat difficult. <laughs> Do you know, I think the problem was they were too focused on it. In, not, in, not in artistic terms, but in terms of the sound. Yeah, oh yeah. They just wanted everything to be one continuous doom, 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 with oh, a bit of squiggling over the top. It's absolutely huge. I, I guess danceable? Yeah, I would, I, would, I, would, I would probably say so, in some sort of Brat Pack movie with Andrew McCarthy and <laughs> Molly Ringwald, perhaps. We're still in a pop zone here, and you can't get any popier in 85 than the Eurythmics, and would I lie to you? But this is a great remix. I think this works because, I mean, I've never been that mad on the Eurythmics. I find them a bit, oh, always did. You know, I remember first seeing the video for Sweet Dreams, where don't they sort of descend from the sky with sort of masked ball masks on with cellos, and like think yeah. this is what I want from pop music, but... I think Dave Stewart was probably somebody who was always thinking one move ahead and thinking about the extended version while he was writing the song. And I think because of that, you get something really interesting. It's something that sounds like it actually has business being this much longer. It's not just an extended version. It is a reconstructed version of it. And you're right, that's that's exactly what Dave Isn't Stewart... it called the E.T. mix, officially? Oh. Not not in the credits of the of Now Dance, but I think that's what the proper subtitle yeah. is. Yeah, and it what was... it's got to do with E.T., I don't know. It was also, and again, I'm going to get geeky for a second. I know you, you're you fine with geek, aren't you, Tim? Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. When the Eurythmics reissued their albums in 2005, they did a lovely box set. They stuck the 12-inch mix of this on... The Be Yourself Tonight album. I ran out and got it because I wanted a copy of this mix and it was wrongly labelled by the record label. And credit to the Now team, earlier on this year they put out a kind of updated CD, Now Dance the 80s, and they have reinstated this proper mix. They have. I've got that compilation. I love it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, Absolute props to the team and and they know that. They've pulled together the best of Now Dance, Now Dance 86, Now Dance 89 into a very handy middle-aged CD wallet pack size. And they've reinstated this proper mix, which is good good credit to them. Cosmic force. Cosmic force. Continuing the pop theme, it's a recurring theme, but another great 12-inch mix from Stephen Tintin Duffy, which is Kiss Me. Yeah, this is the mix plural, isn't it? <laughs> so it's just so exotic. The mix plural. I think this is brilliant though. Of course, he's on now five with icing on the cake. I think what's fascinating here is this is a record that when it was out at the time, the seven-inch version, I didn't really like when it was, you know, mm. on, on Radio 1 or whatever, or Radio City, which, you know, I forget now how important that was to me growing up, you know, our local independent radio station, which yep. I, obviously I later did some bits and pieces on myself. But, you know, there was kind of like micro-community of, you know, what was popular. And I remember Kiss Me was huge on there. Yeah. So it must be really popular locally. But I was never that mad on it. But the 12-inch, I remember the first time I heard it, thinking this is like a different song. It's just very carefully played with. And it's, I think it's the symphonic thing he wanted to do as a shorter song. Yeah. That yeah. maybe didn't quite come off in the shorter form. And it really takes off here. 
right at the end, there's a sort of bit added on. There's a bit like an ITV regional item for the 80s. Yeah. I don't quite know what yeah. that's doing there. Yeah, and, and and like depending on which... Essential television production. I know. Um, yeah, depending on certain compilation albums, because the, this seven-inch version of this popped up on various Now albums throughout the years since, the Millennium versions, you know, anything celebrating 1985, and they often cut that bit off at the end. Which I always thought was a shame. Cause... Well, it's like when radio play getting away with it by electronic. It originally had a sort of <laughs> duh, 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 duh from the string quartet on That's it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like Video Kill the Radio Star, the album. Yeah. You never hear that either. And then it comes on and you go, what is this wizardry? But yeah. So, yeah. So, interesting fact last song ever to be played on BBC Radio on Medium Wave. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, in 1994, when they were basically shutting down to go FM, yeah. they finished with Kiss Me by Stephen Dinton Duffy. Okay, yeah, because uh, obviously they did used to have the split channels, but yeah, yeah. I couldn't see them still having a show that would have played this in 94, because that well, was post-banisterisation. So interesting. If anyone knows, please yeah. write in and let us know. Please let us know, and there will be somebody. <laughs> there will be somebody. There always is. <laughs> <laughs> and we finish off side one, five tracks. I mean, five blossoming 12 inches, with Imagination by Bluey Sum. He is a name that will always make me laugh because I don't know who he upset at Smash Hits and why. Because this was, Imagination wasn't a hit the first time round. This is quite a hip inclusion on here. Oh, yeah. Because it was something that was a huge underground hit that didn't really chart. Yeah. But Smash Hits, from the word go, took against him in a weirdly comic way. I remember one of my favourite manifestos, they always put both parts of his name in quote marks, like Baluey Sum, <laughs> you know, questioning his whole existence. One of my favourite things was a review once of Walkman's, where it had, you know, five stars at the top of most of the poppermost and so on. Two stars, not even one star, two stars was Baluey Sum. Yeah. And it's just yeah. all that shade they threw at him. There was a board game that came with one issue where you had to climb the pop charts, but you could get sent to the dumper with a framed picture of Baluey Sum on the wall. And yeah. the thing is, he, he stood a chance to become huge because he supported Queen well, at those is... massive concerts they did. And, you know, he had this, he had some people, which I think sounded about three years out of date, but it was still a decent record. Oh. And he was happy to, he wasn't pious or pompous. He, he would go on things like Whack-A-Day promote himself which you know you wouldn't think of somebody on now dancers being that keen to do that but i don't quite understand where it went wrong for him yeah you're right this was a no punt on being a hit it wasn't number 50 it got to this time round. it was reissued the following year and got to number 17 hits for listeners if you're interested i think you have to contextualize this so we've got tony thompson again from the power station bernard edwards is playing on it carlos alomar David Bowie's guitarist, or one of them, is playing on this. Robin Clark's on backing vocals. This was a song with beef behind it, you know. Um, and I would also like to point out that in 1986, we got given in school. I'd love to hear from anyone else who got this, because I mentioned it on Twitter a few times. Nobody else has come forward with a comic warning against glue sniffing, where the kid who was reluctant to try it had very clearly been modelled on Baluey Sum. Obviously, somebody had thought, oh, we need to get the kids hooked. Who's a pop star? He'll do. Some really pretentious lyrics in there as well. I think that suits it quite well. Pretentious lyrics is what you want from something like this. And also, given there are there isn't much in the way of lyrics on display throughout these four sides, yeah, the rest of them don't really display much lyrical oomph. And... It's kind of welcome relief in that context. I was probably writing O-level poetry, but if I'd written she lost her virtue before she could write, I lost mine too on my very first night with you. I think my English teacher probably would have given me that back. She lit a cigarette, both hands behind her back. I'm stopping you there, because not only is that really dangerous, no, that's a club I'm not going to go to, to be honest. <laughs> Side two, we flip over. It starts off with loose ends hanging on a string, brackets contemplating, which was a big hit, number 13. And this is the extended dance mix. I think this is one of the most significant inclusions on here because it's the first step away from mm. what we'd associate with 1985. Because this is, it sounds like something you would have heard on the Channel 4 youth show yeah. in 1985, something like Bliss or something. There was that whole fusion, that literal fusion of jazz, funk, soul, early hip hop. Yep. 
coming from all over the world, but it's people like Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam featuring Full Force and the real Roxanne, where it was by accident rather than design, it was a movement, but it's something that people were very into. And I would hazard a guess it's what evolved into acid jazz, along with something else has been written out of history, is that whole sort of thing of those 60s-influenced bands like the James Taylor Quartet and Boys Wonder, who, you know, to some people, that was their whole life, was, you know, dressing in a short suit with a Michael Caine coat and going to see Boys Wonder somewhere. And it was quite a thriving live scene as well, seeing bands like Loose Ends. And this is a great record. They even do it a little bit with the synthesized cowbell, Mm. I would say, which over the length of the extended version gets a little bit wearing. But that was what was big at the time. That would have sounded good in 1985. And it's just with hindsight I'm saying that. It's the beginning of something else. It doesn't sound like a lot of the other tracks. It it doesn't sound like anything on side one. And that is, that's a kind of indication of where things are going. You can almost hear the genesis of things like Soul to Soul in there. Um, Absolutely. I was just, that was just at the back of my mind when they're saying all that. I was thinking Soul to Soul. Yeah. Yeah. And also as well, you know, this was a really successful record in America. This was number one in the US Billboard R&B chart, which again, for a British funk and soul band to do, indicates that there was a real quality that was recognised here in this track. That is a word you can use, not in a pejorative sense about this, quality. It, it's just, it just delivers what they wanted to do and what you want to hear. Sometimes in 80s pop, that's in short supply, I'd say. Yeah, but this isn't really pop, is it? This is something else. And again, we're fed that narrative that it's all about pop. And yeah, yeah. it wasn't. There were things like this happening as well. Yeah, absolutely. They were also on Now 5 as well. They were on Now 5 Magic Touch as well, which again is a track you never hear, which is a fabulous no. kind of soul 80s snapshot. There's quite a bit of that on Now 5 because, well, apart from the Call Me Brothers. <laughs> but you've got that. You've got Jackie Graham on there as well. Around yeah. Here which is another great track as well. Absolutely on on the button of that 1985 soul sound. Good evening. This is the Intergalactic Operator. Track seven on this is Clouds Across the Moon by the Ra Band, which I think we have to stop and talk about. I don't know what your opinion will be. I absolutely adore Clouds Across the Moon. I love this track, Tim, today. And I will say for years and years, you know, in the days when, you know, people still used to do compilation tapes for each other. Yeah. I mean, the word mixtapes did not exist. That's a retrospective invention. That's like nobody called long hair at the back mullets in the 80s. So compilation tapes, which I was originally talking about, more than anything else, I got asked by people, have you got that Clouds Across the Moon record? Can you put yeah. it on a tape for me? That was again and again and again. I love this at the time. I love it now. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that it is quite tongue-in-cheek as well. It's evocative of things like the BBC children's sitcom Galloping Galaxies, which is the guy who wrote Rent-A-Ghost, what he did after that, which is yeah. sort of a farce on a spaceship. It's a bit early Red Dwarf, bit Captain Zepp space detective. Yeah, It's very reminiscent of Doctor Who in the 80s. And the hilarious thing was... When the Top of the Pops, where they did this, turned up on BBC Four, dancing alongside them, playing the guy on the other end of the phone intercom thing, yeah. is Chameleon, the real robot they tried to have in Doctor Who in the mid-80s that never worked. And it's oh. obviously been shoved into a cupboard and they thought, help, we need a robot for Top of the Pops. And he actually moves <laughs> when he's with the raw band as well. We went on holiday to Butlins in 1985 and it was on all over the place and it makes me takes me straight back to playing, do you remember Tempest, that arcade game? Oh, yeah. Where it had the spinny dial and sort of yeah. like fractal vortex. And briefly talking to, there's a slightly older girl there called Yolanda who was dressed a bit like Madonna's looking those days, but what you were allowed to do was like a 14-year-old girl. And yeah, that's what I associate Clouds Across the Moon with, was that holiday. People pull apart the lyrics and, you know, the line about this crazy war, which makes me think about, do you remember Fears had the strip called the adventures of the human league in outer space where they, like, they stop wars between aliens by playing a pop concert <laughs> it, oh, it had that introductory frame where it said phil the girls i came across somebody recently who had never heard this song and i started trying to explain to them and uh, it's almost unexplainable that this is somebody making a telephone call through an operator 
to a spaceship to speak to her partner, who we're assuming is seeing somebody else in space. Is that right? I don't know. It's not no. clear. And also, I would say the guy who asks them to keep it brief because they might lose the signal goes on a bit when he's saying that. I know. It's <laughs> Let them like, speak. I know. It's <laughs> like, you know, my 10 pences are running out here. <laughs> Making an intergalactic telephone call to their partner and missing them. I mean, it's just mind-blowingly brilliant. It is. And this is... It's not even an extended version because it's the band play on for yep. about four minutes while she sort of sobs and sighs yeah, they basically over have... it. Like she's having a, she's like weeping in the corner of a space no. pub, drowning her sorrows and all the rimmers at the bar saying, oh, I believe I ordered a drink two minutes ago. <laughs> and there's this jazz funk band just playing an extended yeah. <laughs> solo in the middle of it. And then she comes back at the end. Mm. And it's, it is just absolutely fabulous. Um, and it's bizarre that it's the same raw band who did The Crunch. Well, this is what I was going to say. If you only had two records in your entire <laughs> collection or two records to your name, Richard A. Houston, raw band, R-E-H, and it was The Crunch from 1977, which is just like glam rock all rolled into one record. And this, that's it. You could retire happily. And the other very strange thing is that possibly the first thing he did was Richard Hewson. Apologies if I'm sort of Nick Drake explaining here, but he was the first arranger that Nick Drake was paired with. They did the version of I Was Made to Love Magic that sounds a bit like Donovan, and apparently Nick Drake hated it and they didn't work together again. But those three things do not sit together on any musical planet, ironically. Let's move on. Ashford and Simpson, solid. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say straight away, I did not know who Nicholas and Valerie were in 1985. They no. Two folk under a bridge in Central Park, getting out of the rain and dancing with lots of strangers. But obviously they had a bit of history, shall we say. Yeah, written some of the most important songs of the 60s. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you kind of go down the list and it's like, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, I'm Every Woman by Shaka Khan, California Soul uh, as well, Marlena Shaw, you're going, my goodness. But here they are, mid-80s. Yeah, I never really liked Solid, even at the time. It always sounded a bit too pleased with itself, as if they were almost saying, yeah, we know this is good, we're assuming you'll think it's good in advance. Like, Calm down, mate, it's not alone again, or is it? <laughs> I think it's a very cleverly done song. It just there's something about it just feels a little too smug. And this is the special club mix as well. Um, it's a bit more robust than the the version I'm familiar with. But they keep saying we build it up, we build it, we build it up, and nothing about this song builds up at any point. Yeah, and it is actually this version that sampled on Three Feet High and Rising by Dollar Soul on Cool Breeze on the Rocks specifically. Oh, yeah. Because I had always thought, where did they get that a cappella bit from? And it's it's actually from the 12-inch. And there we go. The extended version, yeah. Oh. Um, the Cool Notes, Spend the Night. Yes, I couldn't find out that much about the Cool Notes. Uh, it's, you know, it's a good enough song. It's just it's disappeared into history. I could find nothing on the Cool Notes <laughs> other than a, a kind of list of people who were in the Cool Notes, nothing else. And you know how sometimes you get hyperlinks to people's names? Nothing. Not <laughs> there wasn't even one where it was it was red. When you click on it, it says this page does not exist. Four oh four. Cool notes. We have very little to say. Please, listeners, if you know anything about the cool or know any of the cool notes, please let us know. Um, but this was one of the two hits, biggest hit, number eleven. Spend the night. The original twelve-inch mix, and we finish off side two with a Jackson. But it's yeah, not like, it's Jermaine Jackson. Do what you do. Again, this is a, a kind of less palatable snapshot of a time, but it's just before it became really obvious that the Jacksons were, how can I say this? It There was still just enough Jackson goodwill, mm. I think, for this very, very ordinary song that I think Jermaine had probably forgotten before he got to the end of it, you know, for it to get any attention. So I don't know if anyone's made it far enough into the original version, though, if this is any different, but I did notice it seems to have a bit of the theme from Pop's programme in there, which, of course, was <laughs> launched in 1985, Channel 5's very bizarre children's programme, a yeah. puppet that lived inside your television, and people were going to say, oh, yeah, he spat on the screen. He didn't. He misses it up with his breath and wrote his name in it. But, yeah, it was a really yeah. weird programme, that. And it yeah. does sound very like that. This is the re-hyphen mix, by the way. It got to number six in the real chart. Number six. Did it? Which is I had no idea. I've got no recollection of it from the time. I just visualised it as kind of, you know, last dance in the club for, 
you know, blokes with pencil tashes in Pringle jumpers. This song reminds me of one thing and one thing only, and I'm not a frequent listener, but it's Steve Wright's Sunday Love Songs. <laughs> oh, this is tailor-made for that. And I bet Steve takes the mickey out of it like nobody's business. <laughs> Side three begins still with Motown and a big, a big eighties moment in Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge. Yeah, and anyone who follows me on Twitter will know I have a theory that if we somehow hijacked all broadcast signals in the world and played Rhythm of the Night in unison, things would get much better. It is like like the best party you've ever been to. Not even just that. It's the going to the party, it's the getting dressed up, striding down the street, feeling like everyone you go past is like following you in the party mood. It's like the inverse of the video for Smack My Bitch Up by The Prodigy. It is so good natured, it just draws you in. It feels like there's even conversations on the random bits, like this bloke's actually singing in the middle of a house party somewhere. Well, I think it's the beginning of the second verse. You are actually, it's almost like surround sound. You're walking into the party. Yeah. You can hear people drinking and talking and stuff like that and it's like you're thinking i'm actually in debarge's party yeah and like i say it's a party you want to go to because everything about this there's nothing negative about this record there's no putting other people down you know there's not even let's escape our misery it's just come on let's go and have a good time you know i don't think you can get better than that in pop music in terms of you know an infectious positive sentiment I absolutely adore it. It is a great song. Written by Diane Warren as well, which I didn't know until I started digging around. Diane Warren of many, many big hits of the 80s as well. And they do build it up and build it up and build it up because it does does go up to that great bit where they... You know, the instruments cut out and they're just going to the beat of the rhythm of the night themselves. You wait for that because it is so good. I feel like this must have been... The full original recording. Yeah. And the seven inches we know it is somehow an edited down version that doesn't sound edited. That's where this version works because there's no mixing around on this. It's just a a longer version of the best party you've been to. Yeah. Number four. Well done, UK buying public. Now, we move on to some tracks. I must admit, some tracks I hadn't heard for a long, long time. Curtis Hairston. I want you loving just a little bit. Poor old Curtis. I'm sure it wasn't his intention, but he sounds like a big bad danger on this. I'm sure on top of the pops, he probably had a pencil tash and one of those two colour satin jackets and was just being, you know, respectful and, hey, lovely. But there's a lot of uh, noises as well, which, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, ironically, the whole thing sounds even less thrustingly masculine than Blue Boy by Orange Juice. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer did that thing where it's a running sketch about Barry White sort of, like saying seductive <laughs> things to a lady and like, there's a length of copper piping yeah. in the last episode? Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what this song is. But he does want your loving just a little bit. Just- uh, no, he wants your love in. So he wants, you, he wants your love in. Uh, yeah, and it's not even who are just a little bit. I mean, no. it's, it's, it's nowhere near that, to be honest. Uh, chart facts, number 13. Actually, number what? 13. Who bought that? Number 13's pretty... I mean, you know, and he did get his one and only Top of the Pops performance as well. So, you know, play to him, I suppose. But there we go. Um, T.C. Curtis. <laughs> it's, it's the same song and the same bloke. T.C. Curtis... Uh, this made number 50 in the charts. <laughs> I know nothing about TC Curtis. You got anything on TC Curtis? Not really. I mean, it does sound like on this occasion, although it is the same song and the same sentiment, it sounds like they've locked him outside. You listen to things like this, it's no wonder Jack the Groove by Ray's happened. It's no wonder people stepped back completely from, you know, the flashy showiness of... Yeah. You know, people always talk about, you know, NWA was a reaction to how sort of grandiose hip hop had got. But mm. obviously, rave music was a, well, house music as it was originally, was, you know, a reaction to it. It was anonymous, it was faceless. Yeah. And it must have been things like this that really kind of inspired that. And I suppose, you know, you know we talked earlier about the kind of now brand. This was a, a snapshot of a world that, that just didn't exist to me. You know, that kind of club world. Um, mm. 
and it's and it was just something that I couldn't really relate to. But what's interesting on the inside of the sleeve, they give you chart facts and all the rest and stuff like that. But they give you chart positions for two dance charts, for the Record Mirror dance chart and for the Music Week dance chart. And a lot of these songs were bigger hits. I mean, th- this track was number two on the Record Mirror dance chart. Does it say what BPM it had, which Record Mirror always seems to be fixated with? <laughs> Sadly, no. Um, I would suggest Curtis Hairston and TC Curtis would mix very well into each other, though, BPM-wise. <laughs> and I suppose in some ways, again, at that 14, 15, because the Now brand was so important, you took what they said as gospel. So if they told you this track was a big club hit, it was a big club hit, <laughs> do you know? It's yeah. Like- when you listen back now and you go, oh, that's not actually very good, actually. <laughs> you know. But in a club in those days, would the goodness of the music have mattered? It was I about would. the posing and the pulling, I think. So I think you're probably right, to be honest. Nobody got a snare drum rush in those days. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was it was more of a kind of background sound, I suppose, wasn't it? Mm. You know, talking about how dance in the kind of 80s onwards, 87 onwards, became right in your face. Yeah. You know? tracks you know you cut to something like now 11 which i will happily do any day of the week and you take that side four and you've got bomb the bass and cold cut and you know the the beat masters and these songs didn't linger at the back of a club somewhere these songs went boom and hit you yeah at, at this point it was still that you know dance trying to kind of find where it was going yeah, it's a bit like the contrast between something like this you would have heard in the background of seeing in Only Fools and Horses where Rodney went out on the town. And, you know, <laughs> Cold Cut featuring Yaz and the Plastic Population would be, I suppose, Dell break dancing in a backwards baseball <laughs> cap, which is something I don't want ever to happen. No, no, we're almost, that's almost Morris Minor on the majors, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Grooving by War, covering the Young Rascals. Now, summer album. Folks, yeah, yep, yep. got that one, um, which would have been a hit for uh, the Young Rascals in '67. But here we are in mid '80s. Uh, War had been a thing. I mean, War had been a big soul funk band, probably bigger in America. But Eric Burden from the Animals had been involved till about 1970. This is again completely missing in action. Try going looking for Grooving by War anywhere, you will not find it. No, and it is. From two perspectives, it's odd to think this is the same band that did Spill the Wine. Yeah. Which, you know, is one of my favourite records ever, and that they did such a tepid cover of Groovin', which yeah. I, the original Groovin' isn't even my favourite Young Rascal single, but that's that's me getting a bit 60s head there. But the fact that they were still going in 1985, mm. it's like that thing I was saying earlier about how things just moved on in those days. And yeah. finding out that this is the same war, it's a bit like the way... When you see things like, I suppose, something like the Who's Baby, the ITV daytime quiz show, where it's basically, if anyone never saw it, it'd be some panellists. It's always Wendy Richard and someone off Crossroads, and they'd be showing the photo of a young boy and say, ooh, I think that's Ronnie Corbett. they say, it's Ronnie Corbett, and he'd come out. But finding, you know, finding out that that started, like, what, 1970 or something, it was still on in yeah. 1988, that didn't seem to make sense in those days in that context. And it's a bit like that with war. It's like... They shouldn't still be going. They should be like, I don't know how to describe this. It's a bit like the theme for the Walton stopped off at the wine bar on its way home. It does nothing of any benefit to grooving. Who is it for and why? Well, number 43, which, you know, it's not great, but that that obviously had a bit of a push. Do you think people thought it was the Young Rascals one? They did. Sorry, I have been listening, but I've now got the theme of Who's Baby in my head, and I never thought I'd say that on a podcast. <laughs> I can still hear that. Was that was that Peter Skellen? Or am I just making that up? Probably, but they treated him to sound like an old gramophone. <laughs> Who's, Who's Baby? Yeah, yo. Oh, we've gone too niche. Come back, <laughs> listeners, come back. Pop sensibility, we're back, we're back, we're back. Um, yeah, move closer, Phyllis Nelson. And it's Sandy Love Songs again with Steve Wright. There's not much to say about this, because it is a good song, but it's just move closer but longer. It is. That's all this is. It is longer. And yes, it's a dance track if you're at the end of the night. Um, and it is, it is just longer. Did you know her son was in Boys to Men? No, I didn't know that. There we go. Mark Nelson um, was. Well, in- that makes sense because End of the Road is like move closer but less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't remember, it was re released in 1994 as part of an anti perspirant TV campaign. 
Oh, I'd forgotten that as well. But yes, now you mentioned that. There we go. Yeah. There's some fabulous other Phyllis Nelson disco tracks, if if you go looking, big shit pettibone remixes and stuff like that. There are other Phyllis Nelson other Phyllis Nelson songs are available. We have reached side four of the first Now Dance album, which also, they are colour-coded. A red ball for side one, blue ball for side two, green ball for side three, and a yellow ball for side four. So we're on side four. And yeah, it's the theme from Shaft, but not as we know it. No, it's not the theme from Shaft. I don't know what this is. I am appalled by this. It's no surprise to find out Ben Leobrand's involved. Here's the story I've made up in my head. Ben Leobrand buys himself a fair light and somehow manages to weave in the theme from Shaft and then just hits every single sample button on this keyboard to basically make cowbell noises, dog barking noises. Somebody's dad waiting for them outside the youth club. Right. Beep, beep, beep. Just keeps hitting these buttons as much as possible. And somebody goes, let's release that. Yeah, Eddie and the Soul Band and Mahogany, US soul star based in Holland. And it's a long, hot pursuit mix as well. Yeah, and it's just when you think of how great, I mean, not just the theme shaft itself, all those early Isaac Hayes records. Mm -hmm. And again, I think he was aware he didn't take himself too seriously. He knew there's something inherently funny about his image. Like, I've always had to think about, it was nice of him to keep recording the look of love while he was falling down that well. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Justin Lewis, the music writer, once pointed out that as much as he loves the Isaac Hayes version of By the Time I Get to Phoenix, you could actually walk to Phoenix in the time it takes. But they have that element of being great, but you can have a laugh about them as well. But this is just, although weirdly at the end, there's a sort of run of like atonal orchestra hits, which sounds really like something from, in particular, say 90, the second 808 State album. Yeah. When you think of how big an influence Shaft and things like Enter the Dragon were on the early UK house music scene you know you mentioned bomb the bass you know they were and them and s express were very much informed by you know the genuine real deal from the 70s yeah yeah shudder to think what they made of this so side four is off and running um i think we're gonna struggle with the rest of these yeah so right if you're listening to this podcast and you have a great love and affinity for side four of now dance you may want to probably just switch off now (laughs) we start with who comes to boogie by Little Benny and the Masters. And again, we're in the kind of zone of not finding much online about this. Yes, and also it sounds very much like the sort of music you would have heard in a nightclub sketch on Three of a Kind, the BBC sketch show, where, you know, you get Tracy Ullman sidling up to Lenny Henry saying, you're right, trying yeah. to get away from him, and, like, gesture at David Copperfield with a thumb. It just <laughs> it sounds like fake nightclub music, and... Is there not- I feel quite sorry for them because of that, because I can't shake that association. To give this some context, this was a revival of something called the go-go scene, which had been a kind of Washington DC 70s funk sound, and it had kind of come back slightly. And there'd been a nod to it actually on now too. There's a track called Breaking Down by Julia and Company. Which oh, is- yes, yeah. And Benjamin Harris, although this is interesting, if you look him up in the hit singles book of of the Guinness variety. He's called Benjamin Harris. If you look him up on Wikipedia, he's called Benny Anthony Harley. I would suggest there's tax issues going on here. But anyway, there was 45 past members. I counted them. 45 members in Little Benny and the Masters are listed on Wikipedia. So there's 45 masters. It's a bit like Doctor Who, isn't it? It's, it's a bit to be a bit catch-up, to be honest. Um, and that, yeah, this was an 80s revival type thing. Um, who comes to Boogie. Number 33, Pop Kids. Also part of that go-go scene was the next track, which was Bustin' Loose, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, which actually was a track from the 70s. Um, I was going to say it does sound like a... I, I like it quite a lot, but it sounds like a record out of its time. Well, what's that leading to the whole Rare Groove thing that probably started about 18 months later when you suddenly got, you know, like Across the Tracks by Maceo Parker and the Jackson Sisters all being reissued on 12 inches if they were new. Is is this an early example of that? I think it is, because even if you kind of move into kind of 86, 87, Rhythm King Records did a huge kind of re-release of a lot of that 70s funk, and that was happening a lot more. In some ways, it does look towards that rear group. It probably looks beyond that to quite a bit of the hip-hop as well. He was known as the godfather of Gogo. Nobody can take it away from him. No, <laughs> nobody would try. <laughs> like I Like It by Aura. Who were on Now 7 with you and me tonight. 
Yeah, this is interesting because it's the perfect example of that kind of when you're too young to understand what's supposed to be, you know, erotic and arousing and so on. You know, you've got this woman singing this very slinky record about how she wants to, quote, feel you vibe deep inside. And, you know, you're probably just thinking, oh, this is quite naughty. And then the man one comes in and spoils it. <laughs> I say, oh, baby, I am a man all over it. But there was a lot of that in the mid-80s, you know, that kind of female-male bouncing off each other type thing of, you know, I'll sing this bit and then you sing that bit, then we'll sing together and then I'll walk away. I can see on top of the pop, I'm thinking that kind of Shirelle Alexandre O'Neill at the kind of sharper end of it, you know, that type Well, of- yeah, the, you had that sharper end. The other, you had Always by Atlantic Star, which is the sappiest yeah. record ever made. <laughs> number 51. But yeah, then no, you're right. They did higher in 86. They got to number 12 with You and Me Tonight. And we finish off this club adventure, Settle Down by Lilo Thomas. Who does need to settle down a bit? Because he's doing a lot of ooing and sighing. Oh. Apparently about... Like wanting to be chased and romantic and hey, hold on, girl. But he sounds a little hot under the collar. And also the song itself sounds like it's zooming off into space. It's a great way to end because it does actually give you a proper ending to what has at some point been the slightly incoherent compilation. It's an important album for the Now series in lots of ways because it's the first diversion away from the numbers. It's this snapshot of what club culture was in 1985. But it also really promotes music of Black Origin really yep. highly. And I think that's important to mention and and highlighting and promoting a lot of big UK artists of that, you know, that type as well, you know, like Loose Ends and the Cool Notes and, you know, really giving them, I suppose, prominence amongst these other big pop acts. Absolutely. I mean, that was something that was starting to become more accepted or music was music. You know, don't get me wrong. Things didn't get perfect, you know, even a long time afterwards. But this album, the fact that you don't notice that until you think about it, I think is quite key. And it was probably a a brave move for the now brand, not just to move into some tracks that was genuine club culture, but also was the 12-inch as a format. It was recognising that. And it was recognising that beyond the obvious and actually taking something under that mainstream banner and saying, here's something you may not recognise, but we actually think this is worth noticing. It's difficult to evaluate from this distance because there is no record of what was big in clubs. I, I imagine some magazines, probably that record maybe had a club chart, but there were always those sort of charts where you suspected they just made them up. Like the indie chart on the chart show, I always had some very serious doubts. <laughs> so yeah. it's hard to gauge what would have been popular and how accurate the snapshot this was because it would have the limited pool of things to license as well but you cannot fault it in terms of giving you a sense of what it must have been like to go to Mr Smith's in Warrington in 1985. (laughs) And I was so pleased that the Now team brought it back this year and repackaged it as that Now dance. I did not see that coming, I'll say that. Oh, And really faithful as well in some of the artwork tying together themes from this and Now Dance 86 and pulling that together and actually putting some tracks back in there that probably wouldn't have been seen and given us back those mixes, you know. Yeah, I pre-ordered it the second I saw it. I'm having that. I don't care that I've got the original vinyl albums and they're still in very good condition because whoever had these before me had not played them very much, I don't think. But I wanted that CD so badly and I was so pleased when it turned up. For those that don't know that period, it gives you a chance to actually re-explore that chronology of how dance music evolved. The four CD set does that really well because you start with tracks like Easy Lover and Kiss Me and you move by the end of it into tracks like The Cookie Crew and Soul to Soul. You're telling the story of that dance decade really well. Often good to look at these tracks and say what wasn't there. Any thoughts on that, Tim? Well, it's interesting because one of my sort of idle wonderings sometimes is what if they had now in the 60s? You know, would you have had, well, see Emily play by Pink Floyd on now minus 47 or whatever it was? (laughs) But with this, it's difficult to say because as I say, you can't really tell 
what was big in clubs. Whereas with now Dan 89, you point to it and say, well, hang on, where's Voodoo Ray? The only thing you can think of really where the lack of Axel F is very surprising. Yeah. And also, licensing aside, but it could have been different in terms of, you know, an offshoot to do with 12 inches. The lack of Madonna, I think, is really a huge yeah. missing piece of the, of the jigsaw because she was the only one of them that was thinking in terms of 12 inches. I think what's interesting is kind of, you know, within a few months of this album, You've got tracks like Trapped by Colonel Abrams, which is really beginning to sound almost like those proto-type house records. And you mentioned earlier Love Can't Turn Around, which is on No Dance 86. I think it's classified as like the first house track in the UK. That almost makes this album quite a nice, almost a full stop in some ways of, you know, yeah. that was then, this is now. And a kind of period of kind of soul and funk that probably would never be replicated again. But I mean, if you do draw a line under it, there's every risk that one or the other of the Curtises would go up to the line and say, hey, baby, how exactly. about drawing a line under I've just me? noticed that T.C. Curtis <laughs> and Curtis Hairston. So basically, you can yeah. mash them together into T.C. Curtis Hairston. I'm really sorry if anybody from any of these people's estates are listening. We do we do love and support their work immensely. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you for letting me on the podcast. Somebody has let me talk about this album at long last. And I never thought we would manage to not only talk about these these dance tracks, but also talk about Pob and Who's Baby in the same episode. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>